0: Good morning again, Oceanside Sanctuary. It's good to have you joining with us for worship on YouTube and Facebook. Welcome to our online gathering. We are looking forward, hopefully sometime in the next few weeks, to being able to return to in-person worship. But until that time comes, we are still gathering faithfully here together in a digital space. I'm so glad to have you. I want to invite you. To encourage each other in the comments, say hello to each other, respond to the questions that we share with you in this space. Today we're going to jump back into our series on John's resurrection. We've been looking at the Gospel of John since the week before Easter and then a few weeks ago we shifted over to the epistle or the letter of 1st John and we've been talking about how John, the Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved as he refers to himself, how John takes a very concrete and tangible and yet mystical view of the resurrection at the same time. That he holds those two things in tension together. And today I want to end our series on John's view of the resurrection by looking again at First John chapter 1. Just a couple of verses there as John applies the outcome of the resurrection of Jesus to our everyday lives in a very practical way. But before we jump into that passage, I want to invite you, as usual, just to join me as we center our hearts and our minds with a moment of prayer. Would you just pray with me? Great God above, we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity for us to gather in this space on YouTube and Facebook. We are grateful that you have brought us through a difficult year. Our hearts lament and go out to those friends and family members who have been touched by the coronavirus, for those who have been infected, for those who are ill, and even for those who died this year as a result of this pandemic. God, our hearts grieve for those families. We ask that you pour mercy out on them. Today, as we take another look at your resurrection We pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to see this in fresh new ways, that even in the midst of difficult trials, that we would understand what it could look like for us to lean into a life of resurrection as followers of Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I said, we have been going through the Gospel of John and a few opening passages of 1 John to take a look at John's distinctive view of the resurrection. Today I want to invite you to look with me at 1 John chapter 1. In the last couple of weeks we've taken a look at the first few verses of chapter 1 and I said to you two weeks ago that John is laying out in this letter to the early church this idea that the resurrection of Jesus is something that we experience very tangibly, very bodily in our lives together. And I said that that was really a key to understanding John's notion of how we experience resurrection, that we experience it together as a community. And then last week, Pastor Alex preached and he shared with you the next few passages, starting there in chapter one, verse five, where John says that God is light and not darkness. And and how we often, imagine god to be essentially a god of darkness that that is to say that we think god essentially isn't good and how that can infect and damage our notions of what it means to be followers of christ if we believe that god is a god who isn't ultimately essentially good today what i want to do is pick it up from there and ask the question what is the application of us living into a kind of resurrection that is relational and communal and also based on a God who is entirely good. So if you'll pick it up with me, we wanna look today at verse six, we're going to read through uh, verse 9. So six through nine of First John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can look on the screen and we'll put it up there as usual. First John chapter 1, starting verse 6 says this. He says, "If we say that we have fellowship with him, while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true." Now I want to just pause there and just point out that this follows on the previous sentence that Alex preached about last week. That talks about God as light. And so John is just very clearly saying that God is light and not darkness. In other words, God is good and not evil. And if we say that we're with God, but we are somehow walking in darkness or walking in evil, then obviously we're not telling the truth. Because if we are associated with what is good, then that goodness will be reflected in us. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now we're going to continue here and read the next few passages, but I want to just pause there for a moment and acknowledge just the weirdness of that last sentence. Now if you were raised in church, maybe that doesn't sound weird to you. But when John says we have fellowship with one another when we walk in the light and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, that is really strange, frankly uncomfortable, and even for a lot of people, disgusting language. Right? The idea that blood would somehow cleanse us, that the blood of this person, Jesus Christ, who was sacrificed on the cross, tortured to death, and murdered by the state that that person's blood would somehow cleanse us is a a very strange and foreign concept. And it really brings up some of those old tensions that we talked about in the few weeks around Easter. And those tensions are of course this sort of baked in idea that we all tend to pick up in our religious communities That God is an angry, wrathful, bloodthirsty being in the sky who is so angry about us and our guilt that the only thing that will satisfy this great, angry God's wrath is blood. That somehow, the only thing that will make this God happy is if something dies. And and unfortunately, that is very often exactly the message about God and about Christ that is preached from the pulpits of many churches that the God we serve who's supposed to be so good is a God that is thirsty for blood because that God is so angry about the mistakes that we make. It imparts a notion that we are at our core so bad, so broken, so evil that it just infuriates God to the point where something or somebody has to die. And I just want to encourage you that if that is the kind of religious community that you grew up in, that if you were taught that God is so angry about you and your guilt that somebody had to die and that Jesus paid that price for you, I just want to encourage you to set that idea aside and realize that that is not the pervasive notion of who Jesus was or who God is or what Jesus's death is all about. There are many who do believe that, of course, as Christians, but it is not necessary or, in my opinion, good to view God in that way. In fact, I think that's what Alex's message last week was all about that a God who is bloodthirsty and wrathful and requires the blood of other beings in order to be happy, that is not a God of light. That is a God of darkness. So how do we understand this passage? How do we understand John saying that if we walk in God's goodness, that if we walk in God's light, then the blood of Christ has the ability to cleanse us? Well, I want to invite you to turn with me all the way back in your Bible to the book of Leviticus, we're going to take a look at Leviticus chapter 4. This is a passage actually that came up recently in one of our monthly call and response Bible studies. We, we have this study at the Oceanside Sanctuary called Call and Response. It's where we read the Bible together in community and we chew on those passages and we dialogue and debate what those passages might mean. And we looked at this passage, Leviticus chapter 4, actually last month. So I want to ask that you just pause with me and take a look at Leviticus. And I want to point a few things out to you so that we can maybe get a better understanding of what John is referring to when he talks about us being cleansed by the blood of Christ. Leviticus chapter 4 right there at the beginning says this, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, when anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does by any one of them, verse three, If it's the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt upon the people, he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull of the herd without blemish as a sin offering to the Lord. That's verse 3. I want to pause there. That sort of sets up a pattern that we see throughout Leviticus chapter 4. What's happening here? in the book of Leviticus is that the people of God are wandering around in the wilderness. God comes to them through Moses and he begins to give to them ways in which they can live their lives every day through the use of these various practices and rituals. You probably know that already. But here's what's interesting about Leviticus chapter four. This is where we begin to see in the early parts of Leviticus, right before chapter four actually, we begin to see in these first few chapters this ritual of using blood to deal with the consequences of people's sins. And it's spelled out here in a really interesting way in Leviticus chapter 4 because, first of all, this particular chapter is dealing with people's unintentional sins. In other words, when somebody does something wrong, when they make a mistake, when they commit an error that somehow is against what God wants us to do, what, against what God wants them to do, but it's unintentional. In other words, it was accidental. They didn't mean to do it. They made a mistake uh, and and didn't realize that they were making it. You and I make unintentional mistakes all the time. We often hurt each other and hurt ourselves and cause problems for our families or workplaces or classrooms or communities without realizing what we did. Well, Leviticus chapter four is dealing with that exact idea. What happens when we mess up unintentionally and what we see is a kind of hierarchy of ways in which that sin has to be dealt with here in leviticus 4 it starts with the priests it says if the priests unintentionally commit a sin then what they need to do is take a bull from the herd without blemish that is the very best bull they have and that bull must be killed and its blood has to be sprinkled throughout the temple Its blood has to be put smeared onto the horns of the altar. And then the rest of its blood has to be poured out on the entrance to the the holy place of the Lord. And then all of its entrails and the fat and the guts have to be scooped out and have to be burned on the altar. And then the carcass eventually has to be taken outside of camp, outside of town essentially, and burned there outside of town. That's what happens if the priests sin unintentionally. And then what's really interesting is after that, we see three more instructions for what happens when other kinds of people sin. So for example, if the whole congregation, that is all the people of Israel, somehow commit an unintentional corporate sin, then they're to go get a bull from the herd. Not the best bull, not the bull without blemish, but just a bull from the herd and repeat that process all over again sprinkle the blood in the temple, smear blood on the horns of the altar, pour blood at the entrance to the place of meeting, burn the entrails and the fat on the altar and burn the carcass on the outside of town. Same thing happens only with a regular bull, not the very best bull in the herd. If a ruler or a leader in Israel commits an unintentional sin, then it goes sort of to the next level. Instead of grabbing a bull from the herd, then they're supposed to grab a male goat. From the herd, commit the entire sacrifice all over again. Blood gets smeared and sprinkled in the temple and poured on the entrance to the place of meeting. On and on, the pattern continues until we get to just ordinary people in the camp of Israel. Ordinary people commit unintentional sins and they go to the herd and they find a female goat. And they repeat the process all over again. Now, what's really interesting about this sort of formula that's laid out in Leviticus chapter 4 is that it teaches, I think, a really powerful moral for us when we're grappling with the notion of sin that isn't just personal, but sin that extends to our community as a whole. And that first moral lesson that we get from Leviticus chapter 4 is this, that When somebody sins who is in a high position of responsibility in the community, like a priest or a congregational leader, then the cost of that sin, the consequences of that sin, are greater. Because to deal with the consequences of the sin requires sacrificing a more valuable animal. And this begins to immediately impart this notion that the problem with the sin in the first place is not so much the guilt of the person who made the mistake. Remember, we're talking about unintentional sins here. It begins to hint at the reality that we see in Leviticus chapter 4, that the problem we're dealing with here is not so much the guilt of the priest, or the guilt of the congregation, or the guilt of the ruler, or the guilt of that person, although that is true. When we make mistakes, even unintentional mistakes, We are guilty, but the bigger issue that's being dealt with here is the consequences. And so when a regular person in the community commits an error or a mistake, there are consequences. But when a leader or a priest, or or maybe in our lives today, we might say a boss or a business owner or a teacher or a public official or a politician When somebody in a greater position of responsibility makes a mistake, even an unintentional one, the cost of that mistake is greater. And we all know that to be true, I think. We see it played out every single day now in our Facebook feeds or our social media feeds that when a person in real responsibility, a person who carries a tremendous weight of responsibility and authority makes a mistake, there's a much bigger consequence to that than if somebody doesn't have as much responsibility. And that really opens the door to understand what's really happening here in Leviticus chapter four. What we see is not so much that the blood that is being shed in Leviticus four is to satisfy the wrath of an angry God. In fact, that's not implied in any way in Leviticus. the problem here is not that these people have committed a sin or made a mistake and have made God so angry that God has to have the blood of a bull or a goat. That's, that's not the problem here. We're not dealing with God's wrath. We're dealing with something else entirely. And I really love the way that the, that the Jewish Old Testament uh, scholar Jacob Milgram really explains this well. Jacob Milgram in studying Leviticus chapters one through six has really pointed out that what's happening here is not that the blood is cleansing and washing away the guilt of the person who committed the sin. Jacob Milgram points out that the blood acts as a quote, ritual detergent for cleansing the contamination in the temple that the sin has caused. And so when a priest or a leader, or a member of the congregation in Israel, or even an ordinary person makes a mistake, commits a sin, even an unintentional one, the message that's being conveyed here is that there are very real consequences for the entire community as a result of that mistake. And what's being depicted is that the temple, the the place that is most sacred to them, the place that has been created for them to have union with God, that it's been contaminated by that mistake and that the cleansing for that contamination is blood. Now now imagine that just for a moment. The holiest, most sacred, perhaps even the most beautiful place that the ancient people of Israel have is the temple, this place that they are so carefully uh, organizing their entire lives around, the place that they have worked so hard to build to honor their God and their relationship with God, the place that they have poured their, their greatest artistic gifts and the, the skills of their greatest craftspeople have gone into building this incredible temple in the desert that's even portable, and yet It has to be cleansed when people make a mistake because that mistake creates consequences. Now imagine what happens when a bull or a goat is killed and the blood is drained and blood is sprinkled all over that temple and smeared on the horns of the altar and its entrails and its guts are burned at the altar. Imagine the bloody mess that that creates and that I think is the lesson of Leviticus chapter 4. It's not just that our sin has consequences and that those consequences are greater when we are a person of responsibility. It's also that our carelessness, our unintentional mistakes even, have bloody consequences for the community. You see, I think one of the problems that we sometimes have in Christianity in particular is that we have a tendency like in our theology and our songs and our rituals to romanticize the blood of Jesus, to imagine the blood of Jesus as this beautiful and wonderful thing. We even have songs that talk about us being washed or bathed in the blood of Christ in a way that sort of upbeat and un- uplifting and again sort of romanticizes this picture that is not romantic at all, but rather horrific and disgusting. And I actually think that's the point. I think this whole picture of us having to cleanse the temple, the ancient Jews having to cleanse their temple with blood, having to smear blood all over their most holy and sacred place, is not meant to be a beautiful image. I think it's meant to be disgusting. I think we are meant to see this picture as a disgusting image of the consequences of our sin. And I think that's true for Christ too. I think that when we are asked to remember that Christ was crucified on the cross and died and that his blood cleanses us of our sin, that is not meant to be an endearing image. It's meant to be a disgusting image. We ought to come to the place where our mistakes, where our sins, our errors are taken so seriously that we are disgusted by the reality that even the incarnate God had to die and shed his blood because of our tendency towards violence and rivalry and war. We ought to look At the consequences of our mistakes and be repelled by them, not endeared by the cost that Christ had to pay. And I think that is precisely how the blood of Christ cleanses us. Just like Jacob Milgram describes the blood of bulls and goats as having a kind of a ritual detergent effect, I think that when John says that the blood of Christ cleanses us from our sins, if we are faithful and just to confess our sins, I think that when John says that, he is conjuring up this image of the horror of the consequences of the things that we do that are sinful and erroneous and damaging, not not just to us, not just to our relationships, not just to our families even, but to our communities, to our environment. A great lesson from Leviticus chapter 4 is that when we make mistakes, the the repercussions of those mistakes can be really horrific. We don't just hurt ourselves. We don't just hurt our loved ones. We potentially hurt entire groups of people. We are hurting our planet when we commit these sins, intentional or otherwise. And so John is seeking to encourage us here back in 1 John chapter 1. If you turn back there with me, 1 John chapter 1 verse 7, keeping the sort of horror and disgust of the consequences of our sin in mind, hear these words again. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That sounds very much like Leviticus chapter 4. We all have sin, every one of us. Some of it is intentional, some of it is unintentional. But if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just, verse 9, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, because Christ pays for the consequences of our sins, we have the opportunity to now confess our complicity in sin and be cleansed by the blood of Christ because we are disgusted by the consequences of that sin. I don't know about you, but I am frequently disgusted by the consequences of our sin. By my sin, for sure. I I am like you, a person who is prone every single day to unintentionally hurting other people because of my carelessness. And when that happens, the consequences can be severe. And just like the cleansing of the temple and the bloody mess that that involved, the consequences of my carelessness in my relationships with my friends and my family and some of you sometimes is a bloody mess. But it's exactly the act of dealing with that bloody mess that disgust with the consequences of my own carelessness that cleansed me from doing it again. I'm tired of the bloody consequences of my sin. I'm tired of having to confess that. I'm tired of having to clean it up. And so even though clean, cleaning it up makes me feel good and being released of the guilt of that makes me feel relieved, the pain and the suffering involved with dealing with the bloody mess of my mistakes makes me more likely to be careful next time. And I think that's precisely how we are cleansed by the consequences of our sin, by having to confess it, by having to deal with those consequences. And I think it works the same way in every layer of our lives. It's not just my relationships with my friends or my family or you. It's, it's also the bigger systemic structures that I am a part of. Because there are so many things in our world that are a bloody mess because of our sin. We have so many multi-layered, intersecting realities of sin in our culture that to focus entirely on my own mistakes is to miss the bigger point. Because my sin doesn't just contaminate me, it contaminates the temple, it contaminates the community, it contaminates our entire world. And the consequences of that are things like white supremacy, anti-blackness, environmental disaster, poverty, homelessness, war. This is the bloody mess of sin that I think we don't take seriously enough. But when we look at 1 John, we're given a hope for a resurrection that we don't just experience on an individual, interpersonal level. We're given a hope for a resurrection that we can realize tangibly in every layer of our lives the personal, the family, the corporate, the social. The blood of Christ should cleanse us from those mistakes at every single level of society. And it starts by being willing to confess those mistakes and roll up our sleeves and deal with the consequences. If we do that, then Christ's grace enters in and cleanses us not only from our guilt, But empowers us to deal with the consequences of it so that we can become a people of resurrection this is what i want to invite you in today and so my question for you today is very simply this how do you see the consequences of sin in our world now your answer to that might be personal You might be wrestling with the personal consequences of your own mistakes, intentional or unintentional. Or your answer to that might be corporate. It might be social. It might be global. Whatever level you see that on, what are the consequences of sin that you see in our world today? And then my second question is this how do you think that we as the people of god as people of resurrection can begin to deal with those consequences how can we begin to make it right and to clean it up would you just pray with me god we thank you again for today and for uh, your word and how it challenges us and uh, stretches us and calls us to grow into people who have a bigger vision for your grace your mercy and how you empower us to be people who are able to walk into a place of resurrection we pray that you would grow our hearts uh, that you would make us a people who are passionate about pursuing your mission in this world we pray all this in jesus name amen
1: hey everyone it's alex thank you for joining us again on this beautiful Sunday, and we have a couple quick announcements for you before you head off. So the first is is if you're new, as always, we'd love to connect with you. We'd love to get to know you a little more. You can simply drop a name in the comment and say, hey, I'm new. Reach out to me. Or you can head on over to oceansidesanctuary.org contact. You can fill out some information there and we'll be in touch. Next is we have our church. Volunteer work day coming up on May 2nd and the 16th from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. So as many of you know, we're excited, we're getting ready to open up again in person. But that means, you know, we've got some stuff to do around the church. Make it nice again, make it ready for all of you. So we could really use some help. So if you come, we're going to feed you, have pizza. It'll be a good time and we really hope you can join us on either May 2nd or the 16th. You can head on over to oceansidesanctuary.org slash calendar for more, but basically you're just going to show up at the church on those days. Next is our Roots class coming up on May 8th from 9am to 12.30pm. That's on a Saturday, May 8th, it's just a half day and basically Roots is... Uh, our class where you can learn more about our values, our beliefs, our practices here at the Oceanside Sanctuary. It's great if you're new, but even if you're not new, it's, it's great to just come and be refreshed and you know kind of learn again why it is you were brought to this place in the first place. So we'd love to see you there for that as well. And lastly, our book club, our monthly book club is coming up on May 6th at 6.30 p.m. And the book we're reading this time is called Jesus the King by Tim Keller. And Tim Keller is very prolific uh, theologian. He's kind of known as the modern day C.S. Lewis in many ways. And this book really takes a look at how we think about Jesus as a king, right, and, and what being a king means in that context and how Jesus was a different kind of king in so many ways. So, this is a great book, kind of a different book than we've been studying in the past, but I think will really give us a chance to dive deeper into the history and the cosmic reality of Christ as the king. So we hope you can join us there. Oceansidesanctuary.org slash calendar is where you can RSVP and get all the information. And lastly, as always, we are a nonprofit 501c3, and we do rely on the donations and the gifts from people just like you. So if you're able, if it's possible, we would love for you to consider making us a part of your monthly giving. So you can head on over to oceansidesanctuary.org slash give, and you can give just once, you can set up monthly giving, you know, whatever you want to help us advance our mission here in Oceanside and in the broader world. So thank you all for joining us today. Thank you for sticking around. We hope to see you at some of these events. We are excited to see you in person soon and I hope you have a beautiful, beautiful, blessed week. We'll see you next Sunday, everyone. Peace and blessings.